Hey everybody, this is Keith Rainwater on the Designated Drummer Podcast, and I'm here at WSM Radio at the Opryland Hotel here talking to my good friend Bill Cody. This is the country music living room. That's that? Oh, it is? Really? Is that what they call it? <laughs> it looks like a living room. I, I mean, said that one day, and it stuck. It felt good, and I thought, yeah, because... I mean, the Opry is, you can see the Opry out in the distance right? there, you know, and it's just like... And people walking by in, in the hotel, walking by the window. Such and, a special place, <laughs> and I have been here for such a long time that it, it feels like my living room. I know, right? Mm-hmm. So for those that don't know, Bill Cody is a radio personality. I don't want to say DJ because I know that people like yourself don't like the word DJ. Well, you know what? I went into the... <laughs> Country Radio Broadcasters Hall of Fame in the class of 2008. Wow. And I was the last disc jockey Hall of Famer Dis- yeah, to go Yeah, I in. noticed that. You were inducted in it's a way. It's on my plaque. Oh, yeah. uh, it, it doesn't, it's, it's not like uh, the just the radio, Country Radio Hall of Fame. Right. It was the disc jockey Hall of Fame. Then they separated the on-air guys from the business folks. Oh, and it just wow. became the country radio hall well how did that feel though so, did you even though they use the word dj <laughs> i loved it because jockey. that's what i did for the longest right. you know when i started in 71 72 oh uh, as a teenage kid 12 13 year old kid yeah i mean man being a disc jockey was what it was all about that was you sexy know. man those, i mean i'm a DJ, those boss you know? jocks were they were kings yeah you got markets. more coverage more well local coverage than like even the the singers and the artists and stuff because oh, yeah. you were on all the time every yeah, day they were as big as the artists themselves wow those personalities you know my dad were. when i was growing up uh, in el dorado arkansas my dad was a weatherman and that's how he met my mom <laughs> my mom right? was a singer and he was a weatherman he was the handsome dark you know dark-haired weatherman <laughs> ron burgundy uh, yeah, yeah, he was the Ron Burgundy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but any, anyway, um, so you, you, what t- little town in Kentucky did you grow up in? I, I was born in Huntsville, Alabama, and my father, soon after my birth, felt the call to the ministry. This is something that had been going on for a while in his life. And my dad was a combat soldier in World War II, been a truck driver, pipe fitter, plumbing, heating, and air conditioning. Wow. A little bit of everything. Uh, grew up in the cotton fields in North Alabama, uh, family farm. Actually, you talked about meeting, parents meeting. My mom's family's farm joined my dad's family's farm. And wow. large families back in those days, my mom was one of 11. My dad was one of five. Wow. And so in Alabama. They married. Uh, I have a brother who's 12 years older. So I come along 12 years later. Uh, dad is at this point in his early to middle 30s feels the Lord is calling him to the ministry and completely changes his life direction and headlong into the ministry, full-time ministry. Well, to do that, he needed to go to school and decided rather than seminary, he would go to Campbellsville College, is now Campbellsville University in Kentucky, uh, which was affiliated with the Baptist Church in, in those days. And uh, so that's where his journey began, and I was only a couple of years old when we moved. And, that, and for him, that was kind of a fast track to, to get to the end yeah. result, which was Yeah, and he, you know, I mean, he, he's a grown man with a family, mm-hmm. and so he's on a different, certainly a different track than the rest of these students yeah. who are coming out of high school. He's and 30, in his 30s, he's yes. not going to go to start school, you know. And, and so what do you have to do? you got to find a job in addition to the fact that you're going to school. Right. Well. Uh, his, so this is where some of his plumbing, heating, and air conditioning help came in because right, he could do things there at the university or the, or the college, as they called it in those days. Um, and odd job around, freelance around. 
to support the family, but then try to find a church to pastor while he was going to school. And so our first stop was in Gravel Switch, Kentucky, where we we moved. We lived in Gravel Switch, but if you know anything about country life, you know that outside of a tiny, tiny little crossroads railroad track sort of a town like yeah. Gravel Switch was, and still is, it's still around, um, you would have a community church where the farmers and their families out in the middle of nowhere, maybe a schoolhouse was the center. That's right, what yeah. started. Well, there was a community called Forkland outside of Gravel Switch. And uh, he took the pastorate at the North Rolling Fork Baptist Church in Gravel Switch, Kentucky. How many people would you say would come every day? Every oh, Sunday? goodness. I mean, um, a huge crowd? Or was it, it was just, uh, well, it was a little. You know, one of those bucolic white country churches with the mm-hmm. steeple that you see, and I haven't been back in years. And I've had a longing for some reason recently <laughs> to go back. And um, the Forkland Schoolhouse has been, in, that has been turned into an arts center. Wow. And, but it was packed on Sunday morning. You know, in a kid's mind, you you just knew that your daddy preached. And those were where my first friends were made. And people came from far and wide. Did they treat you different because you were the preacher's kid? Was that, is that true? Did they look at you in a different way? Well, yeah, I think people do in general. (laughs) You know, that that whole reputation of the preacher's kids trying to prove that, Hey, we're just kids, you uh, know. Right, yeah. Drop that preacher's kid thing. We're just yeah. kids. But I grew up. They called me little preach and the preacher's boy and oh, all, yeah. all that, which was fine with me. It didn't bother me. And at you're all like, all. I'll show them. I'll become a famous radio <laughs> personality. I, <laughs> listen, I adored my dad and and my mother, who uh, actually became before her passing in 2010 she became a fixture on the morning show with me calling her and just kind of catching up on small town hometown news but that was our first stop was gravel switch my dad pastoring there and then as you would imagine he needed more money more opportunity Mm -hmm. came bigger churches and uh, after two or three stops uh, when I was in third grade we wound up in Lebanon Kentucky Okay. which is the geographic center, Marion County, of the state of Kentucky from north right? to south, east to west. And uh, it, uh, the interesting thing is that it is, at that time, that's since changed, but it was the only wet county surrounded by six dry counties. Oh, wow. So okay. it was the entertainment capital of central yeah. Kentucky. You could go get a beer there if you <laughs> and so it was and. There was Club Cherry, which was the the Black Knight Club on the other side of the tracks in, mm-hmm. in those days. Uh, there was the Golden Horseshoe Club 68, which a lot of people that you you know from a certain era, the 60s and 70s particularly, yeah. played that club circuit. Oh, they yeah. even call, you know, stops like there's been a book written about the Black Knight Club circuit called the Chitlin Circuit. That's what they called okay, it right? in, in okay. those days. And um, so anyway... Uh, here I was, this preacher's kid in this conservative household, and watching all this stuff go on, and listening to stories from my friends. And we moved into as Baptists, we moved into a predominantly, and I mean, when I say predominantly, I'm talking about a very heavily populated Catholic community. Wow. Okay. <laughs> right? Yeah. So wow. it was it was an interesting. I, I, you know, my upbringing 
was so storied with yeah. characters. You could write because, a book about all this. <laughs> yeah, because of all the the people that went to my dad's church and the men in the community with whom he interacted. And it just seemed that the men of that, that era, that post-World War II era, were full of character. Of course, yeah. In, in so many ways. And if not full of character, they were characters. Yeah, right, of course. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't always have great character, but they were great characters. And you were just like a fly on the wall watching all this stuff yeah. go down. And... Yeah, and uh, so uh, that's where it all started, you know, as far yeah. as, as my early childhood. So what was your bit. first um, inkling of radio, where, where you thought, you know, that sort of epiphany, like, hey, I could be one of those disc jockeys <laughs> on the radio? I had this memory. Uh, the radio was always on. Where yeah. Mom had a kitchen radio on. But I have this memory, this vivid memory of walking into the bedroom one night. And my dad was lying with his hands behind his head and his legs were crossed at his feet. And he had his eyes closed. And he had a, a little, it would fit on the the headboard, had like a bookshelf on okay. it in yeah. their bedroom. And had... I can still see it now with a turn. The, the radio. He put a radio on his. And and this plastic. It was encased in plastic. And listening to a ball game, and why? It's just a snapshot that I have of him listening to a ball game, and that is among my earliest memories of realizing that there was something special about the radio. I see. Okay. Yeah. Because obviously he was lying there with his eyes closed listening to yeah. the University of Kentucky and the great Dickie Lyons at that time at UK. Yeah. And I just remember Dickie Lyons' name to this day. Uh, later got to know the broadcast greats that did University of Kentucky sports like Kay Wood Ledford yeah. comes to mind, Ralph Hacker. But this would have preceded, this might have been early in Kay Wood's career or whoever preceded Kay Wood. But um, for me to remember Dickie Lyon's name yeah. after all these years and the description of what was going on says something about the power of radio. Right, yeah. And without any idea that that's what I would do in time. Yeah. But I was just taken by the radio. And as time went on, that love of radio grew as far as just being a kid listening to all kinds of music on yeah. the radio. And, you know, agriculture was a big part of most local radio stations had some time of the day, morning, noon, late afternoon, where they would do the market reports. And that right. was like a high holy hour for farm families. Oh, that right. would come in. And that's, that's what my dad's churches yeah. were made up of primarily as far as his um, parishioners were concerned, yeah. you know, the members of the church. So, And that was probably information uh, that you didn't get in the paper because it took a while to get that information yep. printed and, and delivered to the paper. So mm -hmm. this was like really instant kind of stuff. And on a local level, uh, yeah. between the farm report, the ag report, uh, and – Obituaries. Oh yeah, right. Obituaries were a big deal in a small town. Is that right? <laughs> People would. Yeah. This is how they would find out who had passed. Oh, I see. And right. then when the funeral service would be, and where the funeral service would be, right. and that sort of thing. Wow. So, it, it, and as mobile as we were, and we're talking about now, uh, middle sixties, yeah. middle to late sixties. 
I'm, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, coming along, because uh, I was born in '58. So uh, it, it just transported me yeah. as a kid. It really did. I thought the artists were at the radio station performing. I, I thought I was going to say that when I was a kid, I would watch TV and we would see, you know, some shows where people would perform, all yeah. stand around a mic or like, you know, the, uh, you know, just these old. I grew up in. I was born in '63, so in the late '60s, and I was just still a kid. I would watch TV and we would see these people singing. And when I listened to radio. I literally thought that's what it looked like at the radio station. Mm-hmm. They had a stage and they had yeah. a microphones and they sang live. <laughs> yeah, I did too. Yeah. And, and one of the first voices I remember was a guy named Greg Goatley. This was on, by the time we had settled in Lebanon, uh, where my father would stay for 21 years as the pastor of Woodlawn Baptist Church. So that's where I spent my, I always tell people that's where I spent my formative years. Right, of course. And, um, so we moved there in third grade. I went through high school and actually wound up going to college at Campbellsville, like my dad had done yeah. the generation prior. And that's where I got started in radio. At college, actually. they had like uh, a little radio station? No, at, in my hometown. I mean, oh, the great right. story is my dad, uh, I would listen to Greg Goatley. I remember Greg's name as one of the first local guys that I heard on the radio. There was a gentleman, an older gentleman, who was old school, the last of a breed, who took his guitar to the studio, and in addition to playing music, would play live. And his name was Emerson Lay. I'll never forget him. And people adored him. He wasn't very good, you know, as I think back, as far Mm -hmm. as a broadcaster or a singer. But he was a great personality, and people knew him all over the country within the sound of that radio station. Wow. Which was, you know, it had its reach, but it was 1590. Amplitude modulated. That's right. AM radio. AM radio. <laughs> if for those that don't know, and AM AM is ampl- amplitude mod- modulation, and FM is frequency modulation. Yeah. For those that don't know, yeah, for all the gearheads. So uh, Emerson, you know, doing that live show, and I would just picture these guys being at the studio, and Greg had this incredible voice. And would you believe, as we sit here in this studio, in the last six months, a guy walked up to the window and held up a card, and I couldn't see it, so I got up, I got it into a break, walked over to the window, and it was Greg Goatley, attorney at law. I knew he had gotten out of broadcasting as the years went on and become an attorney, but had not seen him in decades. Well, so he must have been very elderly, I would think. I mean, if he was... Well, he was not that much... Or was he young when he... He was young as a broadcaster, yeah. Yeah. Now, Emerson Lay, uh, Emerson would have been, but Emerson, he, he passed away when when I was still a kid there at home. Uh, But my dad, when I say all that about this local radio station, then as as time was moving on, uh, this is early 70s, 70, and when I say 70s, like 71, late 60s, early 70s, there was a weekend setup of Joe Soul, C. Lee, and F.K. the DJ. They were the big three. That's what they called them. Well, Frank took Emerson's place when he passed away and became my first mentor as this story unfolds. So I'd listen to these guys on the weekend. Greg was full-time, worked during the week. Alan Baker is another name that comes to mind. I mean, you you go back through. J.T. Whitlock was the general manager and did production and was on air. So, and, And these are people that my dad is interacting with every day in life. Yeah. And so I'd listen to the big three doing their rock and roll stuff, and Frank would do the country during the week. It was called the country music scene. 
And uh, when I talked about us being at 1590,000 watts daytimer, so we signed off at local sunset. Uh, we powered up from, I want to say we had 500 watts to local sunrise, and then we could go to 1,000 watts. So we'd right? sign on at like, I don't know, 5, 5.30 in the morning. I never knew that there were, you could change watts like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it, was, it had to do with uh, being directional yeah, right. uh, with, and sending that signal, uh, you, you know, not overlapping with other people. And uh, so I... <laughs> just a flood of visuals are coming back to me as we sit here and talk about this. But I'd listen to Frank in the afternoon, and he drove a blue Ford Maverick three-speed in the column. You remember the Maverick when it was actually a sporty oh, little yeah, car right. from the, Ford? Yeah, a Ford Maverick? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And he had FK, the DJ, on a front license plate. And I would see him in town, and i go, oh, that's him. That's that's the guy that's right him. there. That's the guy I listened to. <laughs> he had a great voice. And then I listened to him on the weekends when he'd do the rock and roll thing yeah. with Joe Soul and C. Lee. And that was Joe Owens and Charles Lee White. And so wow. they used those air names, and that was cool and hip. And So, again, this, this uh, theater of the imagination with yeah. these guys is growing and growing, but all of a sudden— I realize these are these are real people, and yeah. my dad knows the general manager, and so my dad had the forethought to tape his Sunday sermons and have them played back, like at one o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday on radio, on yeah. radio, yeah. particularly for those in rest homes and yeah, that uh, sort yeah, of thing, of people who couldn't get out; those who were homebound, wow. and just to also broaden his ministry and the work of the church in the community, and so. In that coming and going, I go with him one day to swap tapes. You remember the big cart machines back in the day? Yeah, right. That we use for the commercials and music. They look like eight track tapes, but it's actually. Uh, yeah, shorter, had a cap stand like, yeah, that came right. up inside, so <laughs> oh, yeah. and it engaged it, started it, had it disengaged. It's like running oh, wow. a manual transmission on oh, a car. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I remember walking in WLBN. 1590 on your AM radio dial. Have you ever been in a radio station at this point? The Lebanon Springfield Broadcasting Company. (laughs) I had never been in a radio station before. Knew where it was, had seen it, you know. And I looked through that studio window. You know, there's a scene in American Graffiti. Right, yeah. Kind of like this. With Wolfman Jack in there? And that was my Wolfman moment. I looked in there and Frank was on the air and that's when you key the mic and the on-air light big red on-air light comes on and turntables were huge as you recall and he uh, all this it was like watching a drummer speaking of (laughs) and all the controls are within reach kind of like a jet pilot or something it's all like first order of retrievability much like you any night you're on stage you got all body parts are kind of yeah. working interchangeably. All my drums are within reach, and I can use yeah. any of them I want. And it was the same thing in a wow. studio. It always reminded me kind of of having that same sort of rhythm that a drummer has, and to be able to speak and deliver the message at the same time. And hit the switches and do all that physically while you're talking mm-hmm. and thinking about what to say yeah. and all that. That's, that's incredible. Until it becomes almost involuntary. You don't even yeah. think about it, and you're doing just like you each yeah. night when you're on stage. And... I just remember 12-year-old Billy Boy Cody standing there thinking, I want to do that. 
And I wow. told my dad when he got ready to leave, I just stood there and watched because he had a speaker overhead where you could stand outside the studio. And so I could hear Frank and I was watching him. And so my dad goes to his friend, the general manager, Mr. Whitlock, says, hey, this boy of mine thinks he might want to do this. Do you mind if he comes out of here? He said, I don't care. Frank doesn't care. If he wants to come hang out. I never looked back wow. till this moment in time. I never looked back. And then we took a vacation trip to visit family down in North Alabama, where my folks were from originally, and where I was born, as I mentioned earlier, in Huntsville. And I had an aunt who knew, uh, it was a friend of a friend sort of a thing. She says, hey, why don't you take this record back and get your buddy, Frank, to play it some afternoon. And it was called Huntsville Lights by a guy named Bobby Brooks on a independent label out of, I want to say the label was out of either Fayetteville or Ardmore, Tennessee. And he'd gone in the studio. He was kind of a, a, a played the local club circuit down yeah. there in the Huntsville area. And um, so we went back and Frank was kind enough to play it. And as we were leaving, you know, I could hear him on the radio. We cranked it up and he mentioned me and my dad on the air. And so I just started hanging out and yeah. pulling his records and his commercials and typing up labels and sticking them on the 45s that would give the month yeah. that a particular song was a hit and the year that it was a hit. And I would love to know if those records have survived. I would, I'd just like to have a handful of them to know that that yeah. kid sitting behind that Royal typewriter, it's all I could think about. <laughs> wow. It's all I could think about was being at the radio station, yeah. listening to the radio. And none of that at this moment in in my life as a, again, 12, 13, 14-year-old, am I thinking about my voice or the quality of my voice or if I had what it took to do it? I just wanted to be around it. Yeah. Right. Not unlike, you know, as the stories go on and you move through your career and you have some success and you start to interview artists and when they tell you, well, I picked up a guitar when I was five, or I was eight, or mm -hmm. I wrote my first song when I was 12, uh, and I never I never could think about doing anything else right. ever yeah. again. You have that epiphany that, that once you know what you were born to do, you just do it. You don't, you don't ever look back. It's like yeah. never an option. So was it a gift of a drum set that got oh, you started? Oh, the drum thing? Yeah. Yeah. I, it was, I was one of those kids that, that when I um, first, like when I was listening to music and I was in band, played the trumpet and stuff, but I already knew I could play drums. I knew where everything was. I knew how to play certain beats, but I was so naive. I thought everybody did. I thought, who doesn't know how to hit the hi-hat and the bass drum with your right foot and the snare with your left hand? I just thought everybody knew that. I was just like, man, I just thought that. I was just naive. <laughs> and then I was talking to a kid at school when I played trumpet in school, and they said, yeah, we're trying to play honky-tonk women with this little band. And the, one of the drummers in the actually school band uh, couldn't play that beat, that boom, bop, boom, bop, boom, boom. But it was too syncopated for him. And I was going, yeah. I thought everybody could play that. I could oh, play yeah. it. Well, that was one of the cool intros <laughs> ever was that cowbell. I, right, yeah. And then that yeah. downbeat. Well, that guy couldn't do it. it. The, drummer in the, the drummer in the school band. And so that's when I started thinking, like, maybe, yeah, maybe I should. And then I just thought drums were just like completely out of my reach. And there was just no way. But I sort of secretly dreamed about it. And then one day I was coming out of in seventh grade or something. I was about 12 or 13. Coming out of, out of the band, taking going home after school with my trumpet. Sat on my trumpet case, which is kind of a metaphorical <laughs> moment, sat on my trumpet case as a chair. And I watched these guys, three guys, rehearse on stage for the talent show. And it was a trombone player, a clarinet player, and another trombone player. But they were playing guitar, bass, you know, drums, that kind of thing. 
and they were rehearsing like this rock song for the school talent show. And I sat there and watched them in amazement as they rehearse the song. They stop each other and they fix it and they say, play that other note. Uh, okay, start it like this. And I, that from that moment, I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to be in a band. I want to play drums. I want to count off the song. I want to be back there and play the perfect drum beat for a band to play around, you know, yeah. support them like a foundation. You know? Yeah. That's what I wanted to do. And so I just never looked back from that moment. I quit playing the trumpet. Not a Immediately, but I stayed with the trumpet for a couple of years, but secretly started collecting drums and started trying to put together a drum kit. And uh, of course, my dad was always like, you're not going to play drums. I mean, you're just going to play trumpet, right? So I was like, yeah, but I really, you know, I set up cardboard boxes and stuff in my room in lieu of like a real drum kit. And I, was just, I just knew I could play. And so I never looked back. Oh, and that's me, yeah. except my instrument was radio. That's what I tell yeah. people. So when was the first time you actually got to go on air? Was that, was that like... So what would happen is Frank would sign off and then he would just be doing busy work, logs. And back in those days, you had to take meter readings and do all those sort of things. Wow. And... Uh, he would sign off and I would sit in the chair and he would coach me up. He would mentor oh, me. So okay. I would pretend I would play the records. I'd do everything that he did, really just kind of mimicking what right, I watched exactly. him yeah. do. Imitating and imitation. Then, and then I would, as far as what I was doing on the air and how I sounded and all that sort of stuff, it really, as I said earlier, it was secondary. I hadn't thought about my voice or any of that sort of thing. But I was constantly listening to Lexington and Louisville Radio, the two larger markets that were 60, 65 miles away. And that was the big city, big city radio. That's where all the boss jocks were. That's where those guys we were talking about earlier yeah, who were as right. big as stars as the artists they were playing in those markets. And stunt radio was a big deal. And uh, they'd go out. What's in the stunt community. radio? What's stunt, you, you know, they go out in, in the community and. Oh, like do, remote, like they go out do a, remote yeah, with a tape recorder. They do, they'd have some sort of, you know, like recently, ice water challenge kind of a thing. Oh, okay, Come yeah. Do, yeah. You know, that, that's what I mean by stunt radio. Um, or or they'd be, they would be the center of attention doing something crazy, you know. Out or, in front, in public this time. Yeah, instead of when, in we were studio. talking the other day, it came up in the <laughs> studio. I said, did anybody here ever play donkey basketball? Because that was a big celebrity thing they'd want the jocks to do, is go out and play other radio stations, and they'd put together teams, and these guys had this traveling donkey basketball league, and you would play as a fundraiser for the PTA or for whatever organization in the community. Yeah, okay. So that's what I mean by stuff. Oh, wow, yeah. And you'd promote that on the air, and then, man, people would turn out like crazy. Not yeah. to see donkey basketball, but they wanted to see these guys and it, it, there weren't as many women, certainly, in those yeah. days as there are now, um, that were superstars. I mean, yeah. in their communities, they were a big sure. deal. Yeah. And uh, so uh, that's I just would practice and practice and practice, and Frank wouldn't listen when I wasn't there, either to him or the other guys on the air or the other markets and the guys that I knew were the pros and where I wanted to be one day. And try to bring that back and emulate that on the air. Yeah. And somewhere along the way, not be an imitator, but find whatever it is that you do that's unique that makes you, you. Make you, you. Yeah, yeah. right. And, uh, and which is hard. You know, when yeah. you're a kid and you start that young, so much of what you say, I'm just doing what I've learned from all these other guys. Yeah. And then as you start to grow in your career and make some progress, then you got program directors who are going, you know, define yourself find your own way yeah. find your own sound you know i don't know i don't know <laughs> i remember and, uh, listening to as i got in lone star and started uh, well i was in canyon before and and, and that's where you and i radio. first met yeah that's right yeah, yeah. 
and I started noticing that um, radio personalities that had a syndicated show had a sort of a thing uh, that they did, some kind of uh, edge, some kind of subject that one would be like relationship uh, uh, advice. One would be like, um, what was that guy's name that, that was the keyboard player and he was on Entertainment Tonight and he had a radio show syndicated and he would talk John about... John Tesh. Yeah, John Tesh. Life hacks. Like, here's a, here's a tip of, about yeah. frying pans or mm-hmm. here's a way to get better laundry. It seemed mm-hmm. like he did sort of life hacks. Yeah. But uh, it seemed like that was kind of the thing. And in, in syndicated radio, uh, it, a lot of that came out of success that people were having at the local level right in, in a major market and so hey man we could sell this he, this guy's great or she's yeah. terrific we need to we need to this needs to be a national show yeah. and that's how a lot of that, that so they would about. hire a sales team I suppose exactly and, to do the national sales call, making cold calls to mom and pop radio stations across the country or whatever and say like hey your slot from 7 to midnight or whatever uh, we've got this show that blah 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 and, yeah. yeah yeah. and uh, Delilah you know is probably yeah. as famous we've been on as her show before and so and then the weekend shows the countdown shows and right. yeah. all those things were offshoots of that but, but you had to have like you said you had to have your own voice you had to have a thing that you did that yeah. Special and uh, you know on the on the local level, uh, doing morning radio in Nashville. Though it's changed, I mean now we're simulcast on Circle Television all over the world, streaming platforms over the air. I mean you name it, uh, it's changed so dramatically in such sure a has, short yeah. period of time. But uh, when I came to WSM, I mean you wanted to serve the Nashville radio public first. You realize mm-hmm. this is a monster 50,000 watt clear channel signal famed for being the radio broadcast home of the Grand Ole Opry, but that's yeah. just a few hours on the weekend. And we weren't doing Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night shows back in those days. It was yeah. strictly Friday and Saturday. And then the Opryland theme park came along. We'd do some matinees in the summer, you know, for the tourist crowd, but it was nothing like the number of shows that we do is that kind presently. of how you got into uh, you've been the announcer for uh, w, for the Grand Old Opry for how long how long well as you been? and I sit here I've been at WSM for 29 years 29 years April wow. 25th 1994 is so when I'm I assuming you got the gig it's going to work out right? so <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I got here, I didn't do the Opry initially because yeah. in those days the rotation was different. Uh, you had, uh, instead of one person hosting the entire Opry show like we have for the last yeah. decade or so, uh, you had three guys in any given show night. And I had just gotten to town. And my family was, was young, and they needed you to be there on Friday and Saturday. You married Saturday. your high school sweetheart, too. I did. On Friday and Saturday night, you needed to be there both nights. Right. and. It was not until I came along, with the exception of Grant Turner, I want to say, and Grant's morning show schedule was not doing mornings in the traditional way. He was a part of mornings and had certain slots that he was legendary in those slots, Um, but more uh, features and vignettes and that kind of thing. But he was the voice of the grand old operator. That was his yeah. gig. So doing mornings and nights, when you think about it, when you do the Opry, was not something that had been done. And uh, as times changed and the way we used personnel changed yeah. and the number of shows we were doing increased, and then we all started hosting uh, my team of colleagues at the Opry, Mike Terry, Charlie Maddows, now Kelly Sutton, we... Like, I'll do a Tuesday night and maybe a Thursday 
Kelly will do Wednesday. Charlie yeah. will do Friday. Michael will do Saturday. But you do the whole show. Yeah. But to get up at 3.15 in the morning and do the morning show and all that comes with that and the demands, you know, as your popularity grows and your yeah. success grows and freelance opportunities and speaking engagements and that sort of thing. And you get home, take a quick nap. Uh, if you get out and get some exercise in, come in, shower, throw your suit on, <laughs> head right back, back into to town, going back to the Opry, wow. you're getting in bed at 10, 15 at night and up at 3, 15 the next That's morning. just brutal. And, and so, you know, a couple of nights of that a week is enough. Yeah. It really is. Uh, I don't know how you do it. And, I don't know how you, and, or, and you do it for a period of time. And they're, you know, guys vacation, so then you pick up their slack, but they also pick up yours somewhere yeah. along the way. But it didn't make those weeks any earlier. Right, <laughs> didn't yeah. make those 315 wake-up calls any later. And just to think, <laughs> 29 years of... Yeah, you know. and again, I didn't do the Opry in those early years. Yeah. Um, there was well, the Opry announced staff was full at that time. And, uh, and there were a couple of times where I was offered the opportunity and uh, Kyle Cantrell, who brought me to WSM in 94, uh, he, on one occasion, uh, when Charlie Douglas retired, not too long after I left, asked me, and I said, man, there's nothing I would rather be a part of. I mean, that's the other part of this dream that yeah. I've had since that 12-year-old kid yeah. looked through the studio window at WLBN and saw his hero, Frank Kemp. It's been WSM and the Grand Ole Opry. Wow. But to have to say not right now really yeah. pains me but I have to because I owe that yeah. to my family and he understood and he also understood hey we've not had somebody doing mornings also yeah. you know coming back and doing the at least on a regular basis maybe a fill in or something like that yeah. so wow. um, and as the years wore on that changed the kids get older and you have more opportunity and so yeah. you know I, I rolled into that that regular rotation how do you feel that radio technically and and just you know emotionally and everything has changed from the days of when you know like what, the golden age of radio i could say maybe like in the in the 90s or something like that when you still could play whatever you wanted or whatever and then now everything seems so programmed yeah that, what you, what's your opinion on all that you know what we were talking about when i said uh, when i came here in 94 you wanted to serve nashville you wanted to be local yeah. but have people somewhat romantically intrigued wherever they were listening because there was no internet streaming when I got right, here. That right. didn't come along until a few years later. Um, but that has been the biggest change. Yeah. In my 50-plus years now, the biggest change is how quickly technology changed yeah. our industry and not always for the better. Yeah. So it seems uh, like they're always the tech people are always coming in and out of here with new gadgets and new wiring and new yeah. this and that, new server, new and more and more voice tracking yeah. became started to become a part of things. So you didn't have live jocks anymore. You had yeah. w with uh, the corporate buyouts that took place and mm -hmm. just a handful of companies owning a lot of radio stations and having maybe a central program director somewhere that programmed yeah. for everybody. So the person doing mornings in Nashville may be doing middays as a voiceover person yeah. in Des Moines, and they yeah. may be doing nights in Las Vegas wow. as doing voiceover with no connection to that market whatsoever. Wow. So that um, 
But how you managed to survive all that. I have I, no idea. I just, I, I'm just thinking like, you're still here, you're still doing. And I've been told by so many radio people that I've met in the past that radio is such a fickle business and you got to really be able to, you don't ever uh, unpack your suitcase because you're going to be needed somewhere else or the hiring and firing. The turnover is so fast at a radio station. Yeah. One week you may be working at this station, next week you may be somewhere else. You got to yeah. be ready to move. But you have just been like a rock solid I, I was so here. fortunate to make uh, <laughs> beyond myself, if you will, pretty level-headed decisions when I did make a move. Right. I was so young when I started. You know, I'm living at home till I'm 17, and then I go to college and I'm commuting back and forth from home and working at the local radio station. And I decided to transfer. I was going to go to the University of Alabama, and. Got down there. I was in love with my high school sweetheart, whom I'm still married to after 43 years, by the way. Wow, uh, <laughs> I think that's such a great story. Uh, and I was homesick. I was lovesick. And I stayed a little while. And a couple of weeks in, I told my mom and daddy, I said, you don't even have to come get me. But I'm telling you what, I am coming home. And I was in a VW bug. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. In so, the early 70s, right? Or late 60s? This right? is 77. Oh, okay. Okay. And so uh, with the promise that when I, if I did come, if they let me come home, yeah, that I would go to school. I'd get in school somewhere because it was early enough in the school year that I could get in late enrollment. And uh, so I, I came home. I was thrilled to be home. Went to Richmond, Kentucky, to Eastern Kentucky University to enroll. And I remember the guidance counselor saying, um, listen. Uh, your advisor, you yeah, know, in college, right. they're not your guidance counselor anymore. You're my advisor. Whatever you do, don't go into radio, <laughs> they say. Said, uh, well, I can get you in school, but you're not going to get any of the stuff that you really need for what it is you want to major in, you know, because yeah. you've already got a year behind you. And I know broadcasting, public speaking, that's the direction you want to go. So I thought, well, how am I going to explain this when I get home, that I didn't get enrolled? And as I left that office on the bulletin board, in the hallway at Eastern Kentucky was the letterhead for WVLK, Lexington, Kentucky, which is other than WHAS, WKLO, and WAKY, Wacky, in Louisville. Yeah. WVLK was the other radio station that we all listened to in my little hometown, yeah. 60, So you recognized the logo and it oh, caught your attention? Immediately. Wow. Could run the lineup for the say? whole day of, of superstars <laughs> that were on the air. And... They were looking for a nighttime person. Wow. I go home, take the letter with me, take that down off the bulletin board, take it with me, go to my boss, and I said, can you help me? And the fella, J.T. Whitlock, whom I mentioned, was at the beginning of this whole thing with my dad going, hey, let that boy come out here and hang out if he wants to. It doesn't bother me. So Mr. Whitlock makes a call to the legendary voice of the Kentucky Wildcats, Ralph Hacker who for years, Ralph was the color commentator to K. Wood Ledford, who is still years, decades after his passing, a legend in the state of Kentucky. Wow. Uh, and then when K. Wood retired, Ralph took over the play-by-play -play duty. So anytime you're doing play-by-play, -play, you're the voice of the University of Kentucky. Yeah, you got a lot of ears. Oh my goodness, <laughs> you are, I mean, you're royalty. Yeah. So Ralph said, yeah, send him on up. So really? I went to Lexington, met Ralph, who introduced me to Jim Jordan, 
who ultimately hired me, and I started doing nights at WVLK. So my wow. first big break had finally happened. Now, in those days, you could play what you wanted in those days? No, no, no. It wasn't no. really programmed? That was the, the eye-opening experience of going from, really? from small-town radio to media market radio. Uh, playlist, tight playlist. They had it all uh, yeah. programmed out. And you had the program log, the commercial yeah. log, the whole bit. Wow. And I, I learned a ton in a short period of time. Yeah. So this is 70, uh, 7, 8, and 9. And, well, by 70, yeah, because just the first month of 79. And then the the radio station of my childhood, as far as major market, was yeah. WHAS in Louisville. Uh-huh. And there was an opening at WHAS. And... I got the gig. What what time so slot was it? It was I was they had so many. This was a Bingham family owned property. The uh, Bingham family owned the newspaper, TV station, radio right, right. station. And anybody familiar with Louisville knows the Bingham Empire and that whole several blocks that encompassed all their properties. So it was a it was a big deal, eh? So this was yeah. now I'm moving up to large market. Yeah, you know, Louisville at that time was fortieth, forty fifth, something somewhere in the mid forties, and I am truly working with all the guys I grew up watching on television, who also had radio shows. I mean, this outfit was king. Yeah, wow. And so I, but they had so much seniority among the staff that they needed somebody to fill in almost. All the time, somebody was away that they needed. I see. So yeah, I was going right. to be the swing guy. And then when I wasn't needed in those roles on the air, I would do production. I see, yeah. So that's For what commercials got, and things like yeah, that, right? That's yeah. what got me to Louisville. Did and, you enjoy and, doing commercials, the production? Did you enjoy it or was it mundane? Uh, it would depend on the project. Because it's know, probably like, you know, pick up a new washing machine today at Sears yeah, or something like it that. It was drudgery early uh, on because right. I, 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 I overthought it and it was take after take after take to uh, get. Right. Because, you know, you decided what the finished product was going to be yeah. and what went on the air. Were, back in those so, days when you did production, was it just you or was it like one other person that would no, operate just, the tape? You, you did it all. We didn't have a union shop yeah. where you had a board engineer and all that I've seen guys do that stuff. before. Yeah. Guys and gals, well, they go into one a little room. In, at the radio station there where they just have a little setup in there with a microphone and some kind of little thing and a board and you just do it all yourself. You cut yeah. it and... Everything was on reel-to-reel. Spice yeah. block, you know, spice, razor blade. Yeah, splice it. Yeah, splice block, razor blade. Wow. Grease pencil. And um, work your magic, you know. And But I, I grew to enjoy it more. But as, the, as we sit here now, what I enjoy is doing more of the long-form documentary style yeah. voiceover sort of things that are not right. hard sell production as yeah, you recall right. back in those days um but um so that's that's what so i went to whas to do so and i then, so I, I did that actually worked up to afternoon drive before i left in 85 and had an opportunity a market legend a guy named bill bailey was leaving across town at the country station and all this time i've done middle of the road and i've done uh, you know, blocked formats where you play a little bit of country and then you play rock and roll and right, then you do yeah. easy listening and and uh, top forty when I was in Lexington. Uh, light rock is what WHAS would be by today's standards, but they called it MOR, middle of the road in those days. Right. But I'd never done full time country since I'd left my little hometown and had this burning desire to do that. And uh, did Bill, you like country music at that? Well, I mean, oh, being raised yeah, around it. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, and the thing was, 
being immersed as young as I was in all the, in a blocked programmed radio station right. where you played a little bit of everything is not only did I know what I liked when I got there by what I'd already started listening to, right. but I was introduced to orchestral, you know, orchestral music. Yeah. Uh, we played Ray Conniff and Andre Castellanitz and the Robert Wagner Chorale and those kinds of things. You know, well, I would never have done that on my own, but right, if you work yeah. that particular shift, you learn to do it. Yeah. And so my musical interests are still, because of that, so broad and so widely varied. I know what I like within each format, you know. I yeah. mean, I'm a traditionalist, lean to more to the traditional side in country, but um, but have played it all through the years. So, 85, I leave and I go across town, um, sit out a non-compete, because Bill Bailey, the legend, has retired. I'm gonna do mornings, I'm gonna do country full-time for the first time, in, in a major market setting anyway. And I'd only been there about six months. And the guy I mentioned earlier, Jim Jordan, who'd hired me in Lexington, called me. He's now moved up in the company. He's a general manager at WHOO in Orlando, and which was a country station. Right, yeah. And wants me to come down and do mornings in Orlando. Wow. And it was really a much better opportunity than, one, than the one I had taken. Yeah. And so I went to Orlando. You did? You went? And as I said, you know, what started this program of our conversation was the fact that I, I seemed to make level-headed decisions. Well, at this point, I'm married. We have two children. And moving away from, because my mom and dad had always been within a 100-mile radius of us, you know. Yeah. Moving. That far away. That far, yeah, place. that was yeah. a big deal, you know. And, I mean, we weren't kids anymore, but... It was a transition. We knew it was going to be, but it just was it just, good money. I mean, was it good enough money to yes. keep you? Yeah, it was good. It was it was quite a, an increase in money for this young couple with two kids, and I just knew along this entire journey that WSM and the Grand Ole Opry, whatever I have to do to better my chances and get better at what I do, so that if that opportunity ever comes along. Yeah, it'll you know it'll fall into place. So I stayed down there a couple of years. I bet your kids were like, "Whoa, Disney World!" <laughs> <laughs> they were actually they were my son, my my oldest. He started first grade there, or kindergarten first wow. grade, and uh, our daughter. We only stayed a couple of years. The company sold the radio station. They changed formats, and I wound up as a result of knowing people in the marketplace and other stories that would be too long to go into. I wind up in San Antonio, wow, which was outside of coming to Nashville and yeah. WSM. Well, that's when I met you when I was with Canyon. Exactly. Right? Yes, yes. That's where I wanted to be was in Texas. Yeah. And in my mind, I thought Austin because I'd watched yeah. Austin City Limits, and I thought that's that's the place to be. But when the San Antonio opportunity came along, went down for an interview, looked it over, they looked me over, and I took the job, and again made the right move at the right time in my career. I now, where in, were you in your career talent-wise? Like, did you feel like you had it down? Like, were you were you a pro? Did you no. still have stuff to learn? Or That happened when I got to San Antonio. Ah. That's when I found myself, came into my own, felt like I made, over the seven years that I spent there yeah. doing mornings at KKYX, that that's 
I, I, I got this now. Yeah, I right. just need that in. opportunity yeah. in Nashville to come along. Yeah. That <laughs> now, was your, and yeah. I adored being on the air in South Texas and living in the hill country and the friends that we made and the lifestyle. I mean, everything about it was just perfect. That was like your master's thesis, or, yeah. as it were. You know, and our so third, and, our third and final child was born there. Wow. And uh, and my actually going back, I talked earlier about families. My mother's dad was a native Texan. He was born in Crawford, okay. where the the Bush White House, the right. Texas okay. White House right. is. And um, so it had always been a Texas connection. And listening to the music and being a country music lover, so many artists were from Texas during the time period that I was growing up. Yeah. And it was just something, as you know, being a Texan, yeah. uh, on the outside looking in, there's something hopelessly romantic about Texas. When that bug bites you, you yeah. can never get over it, whether you're a native or you want to be a native. You know? Right, yeah. <laughs> and um, so... I started in April of 87 at KKYX in San Antonio, and I left on the same day, like April or whatever. It was Texas uh, Independence and the night in old San Antonio, you know, that Niosa, they call it. Right, okay. All that goes along with all these Texas celebrations that happened in the spring, Battle of San Jacinto. And I left on the same day I started. It was like seven years apart. Seven? Oh, wow. Well, you know, in the Bible, being a preacher's kid, in the Bible, the number of completion is seven. Wow, okay. So I stayed exact to the day, seven years, to leave to come to Nashville, WSM and the Grand Ole Opry. Wow. And that happened on December the 16th, 1993, my birthday, my phone rings. A girl I had worked with in the Lexington job that I talked about earlier mm-hmm. is now in marketing and promotions at WSM in Nashville. Wow. And she called and said, the job you always wanted just became available today. Larry Black resigned effective at the end of the year. She had remembered those conversations of me talking yeah. about all those years prior yeah. and thought to call me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known. Yeah. It was meant to be. I'm telling you, it was meant to be. That's amazing. And And uh, what year, this would have been in the mid-90s? This is 93. 93. Late 93, Kyle Cantrell had just come on as the program director here at WSM. And ultimately, through phone conversations, his wife has their first child. And then subsequent to that, flies me into town. And... We put together a deal, and I came to work. Bob Meyer was the general manager in, in those days, and we agreed on things. And I started on April 25th, 1994. Wow. Did you change anything uh, in, in your style or anything? Or no. Was it just your that was what was Bill so Cody great. that you hear that you Yeah. Know. That was what was so great about the, the San Antonio years where I was talking about how I came into my own. That was the period I felt like I made the, the most amount of growth in – in my career where yeah. I knew, okay, this is who you are. And if you just keep, you know, you want to continue to grow, mm-hmm. but you you know what you're good at. Yeah, I think that's the that tough part. That would be part. so hard for me. You know, I mean, even being a live musician, when we play live like that, I know that you have to turn your mistakes into parts that you meant to do that kind of thing. So, but for you who's talking for a living live, you know, people are listening, you could mess that up pretty easy. You yeah. know? And if it were me, I don't think I could do it. Biggest thing that I learned to do was 
was truly relax. And you know how people say, be yourself. Like, what does that mean, be yeah. yourself? But once you start hitting on certain things and getting certain responses from your audience, whether that's on the air or in public when you speak, or in this case, you know, working the Opry or in those days working live shows at clubs, and you're able to, to maintain an audience, keep yeah. an audience engaged, you, you just start to automatically do more of the things that you realize are getting a response and that you have a talent for. A natural, so it's kind of almost like a gift. file in your brain of what to say, and you, it just comes out that way. Like yeah. it's sort of pre-programmed in your brain, you say it. And, and that being able to relax, and it was probably as big a moment as any, and it, there wasn't one specific moment, it just occurred over time, but uh, over moments in time, just to just to be on the air and not be all keyed up yeah. and tense every time you key the mic and this break's gotta be perfect. Yeah. And and like you say, turn your mistakes into your faux pas like into funny things. Yeah, yeah right, you exactly, know, yeah. Or, or, or make them work for you somehow. Yeah, because it's kind of either like, I think of radio, like the old radio, where you could just play whatever you want, say whatever you want, well, you couldn't say whatever you want, but I think of it as like jazz in the early days and more like symphony now, because symphony is everything's written out and everything's pre-programmed. You do what's on the page kind of thing, mm -hmm. but you still have, uh, you can still perform in such a way that, you know, it's special and it's you. When I got here early on, of course, TNN was really rocking, and it was such a, a wonderful outlet for country music on television on a national level, and cable was yeah, relatively right. new in our lives, and look how far we've come yeah. since those days. Uh, Opryland theme park was blowing and going. Um, so with the opportunity to do television now, because I was watching TNN, in addition yeah. to having these dreams of WSM Radio and the Grand Ole Opry, thought, hey, you know who I want to be. Yeah, I want to be the next guy when Ralph Emery steps away. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Work my way, not to take over for Ralph or yeah. take Ralph's place in On any Nashville stretch. Now, of, you yeah. mean that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because I'd grown up during the Johnny Carson era of late night television. Right. And that was huge for me. That was huge for me, Johnny Carson was. Yeah. Because all this radio stuff's going on in my life, and I can see what these guys who were in radio at one point in their lives yeah had you know their their television kind of rolled career. into tv well, yeah. well you're a nice looking guy and usually if you have good looks you know and you're a radio person then you would naturally be chosen to yeah. be on television I and think. so uh but i would watch ralph and i thought you know he did morning television on a local basis and then he'd go out and do the network stuff and he did radio famously right uh, you know the overnight thing here he was and, kind of workaholic, wasn't he? And, yeah. <laughs> and, but again, not to be Ralph, but to do what he was doing. The, yeah. The, the, it was very was exciting. Pioneering prospect, in so yeah. many ways. And I, I wanted to follow that path yeah. uh, that he was teaching us all yeah. on. Right. And so uh, opportunities came right away over at the Nashville Network. And one of those was working with Dick Clark when I auditioned some years later. At that time, the show had become a primetime country in right. Maine. Yeah, I remember that. And Lorianne and Charlie, you know, watching mm -hmm. them religiously, 
radio syndication, which you talked about earlier, which was another outlet that I, I was exposed to. Got my first opportunity with them, filling in for Charlie, guest hosting when he would take vacation time. Right, yeah. Here I am sitting across the table like you and I are from Lori Ann Crook. Are you wow. kidding me? <laughs> and so all this. We all love Lori Ann. This, this is all going on. And then Dick Clark Productions comes in to produce Primetime Country. And I was one of the three hosts. There was Katie Haas, me, Gary Chapman. Gary got the gig. But we all had a week to audition yeah. before the decision was made by the network executives on who the host would be. And certainly I was disappointed that I, I didn't sure. get it because I just felt like I was made for this moment right. in time. This is me. And, but other opportunities would come in the years that followed and continue to this day. But Dick Clark, working with Dick Clark and getting to know him a little bit mm -hmm. and something that I learned from him one day spending time with him was he would carry note cards with him about his guests and about things he wanted to do and between stops, because obviously when he would come to Nashville to guest host, which he yeah. did a few times, he was in big demand by yeah. media in this town, interviews and that sort of stuff, because he's Dick Clark. Yeah. But he told me, he said, what I do is I, I keep these index cards with those notes and artist bios, and in between when I'm riding in a car or sitting in the lobby somewhere, I take that time to look at it and just kind of flip through them and refresh my, myself on what I'm going to do later wow, on. that's great. And then put them away. And then maybe, in his case, you know, he's got a, a driver, so he's got a 20-minute cross-country or cross-town ride yeah. uh, between interviews, and he gets them out, and he looks at them and refreshes. And see, yeah. By the time I get to the set, I'm not relying on the cards. Yeah, right. It's going to be up on the prompter. It's fresh on your brain. And, you're and he ready. said these words to me. He said, rehearsed spontaneity rehearsed spontaneity. meaning he had taken the time to do his homework mm -hmm. and rehearse maybe read out loud what he was going to do that night but it was not going to be verbatim yeah he was so comfortable by then with what was going to be on the prompter yeah that it looked like it was the most conversational thing yeah and i thought yes that and yeah I treasure that conversation with him and those two words, rehearsed spontaneity. And it continues wow. to be the way I approach the morning show here. What I do on TV, what I do on the Opry is, yeah, we've got a, a script to go by mm -hmm. uh, so that everybody's on the same page. But you can't just read it word for but word. You have making to, it your own yeah. so that Mike Terry doesn't sound like Bill Cody, nor does Charlie Maddows, nor does Kelly Sutton. We all have our way of doing it that makes it comfortable for us. But yeah. for me, those are the words that, that yeah. continue. Rehearse spontaneity. Yeah. That's amazing. Isn't that, a, isn't that a great phrase? I have a couple of more questions to okay. ask you. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know I've, I've already eaten up half your day here. <laughs> but um, uh, one of the questions I had was a kind of more a drummer-specific kind of thing, because it's a designated drummer podcast, is um, has there ever been a drummer that you remember, like when you interview groups and things like that, and um, bands and things like that, was there, was there ever a drummer in a band that sort of caught your attention that, that was like, well, hey, there's something special about him, or that was interesting to talk to? Well, there would be many if I gave this some thought. One that pops into my head right away is Billy Thomas of McBride and the Ride and with okay, Vince yeah, Gill. Okay, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Because I met Billy 
in the McBride and the Ride days in San Antonio. Like and he plays 90, with Vince Gill a lot, right? 92, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then went out with Vince and still goes out with yeah, Vince, right. I think. Yeah, I have watched him come in here as a part of McBride and the Ride because they've gotten back together. So you got Ray Herndon over here playing guitar and you got Terry doing the McBride thing. Yeah. And Billy, and he'll sing that harmony and cannot not drew the drum movements to the songs oh, as he's singing like, them. <laughs> he's like, it's like air drums. Air drumming, like yeah. you never see it. He can't do it. <laughs> and it just fascinates me that the music is so in him wow. that he can't do it yeah. without it. Has to he's pantomime the drums to sing. Yeah. Uh, wow, that's incredible. Seeing Buddy Harmon in the flesh on the Grand Ole Opry stage when I first got to town wow. because he was the Opry drummer. Right. And, yeah. You know, Buddy played on what? 15, 16, 17,000 sessions. Something incredible, enormous. I mean, the most recorded drummer, I would say, in Nashville history. Getting to see him when I first got to town. Uh, He was still very active. Um, And, well, gosh, I get to work with Eddie Bears and Mark Beckett on a regular basis at the Grand Ole Opry. You know, and learning musical terms that I didn't know before, like, oh, man, look at... Look at Eddie Bears. He plays open-handed. And I was like, "What does, what does that, that mean?" mean? Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, and then they said, "Oh, well, you know, some guys they play cross-handed. Yeah, right. You know, the snare's over here and it goes over the top. He's right a left-handed handed. drummer. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And and I was like, "Oh, yeah." I've so always now, admired drummers who play who are left-handed, play left-handed, but on a right-handed kit. That to me is just the <laughs> coolest way to play. Yeah, you know, because it leaves your right hand open to hit the toms or whatever. You don't have your arms crossed like that, mm-hmm. so it leaves so many more opportunities. Play the hi hat with the left hand and everything else with the right hand. You can sit there, and keep that going or whatever. I wished, you know, Kenny Aronoff, the drummer that used to play with the, um, uh, oh, what's his name. Um, John Cougar Mellencamp for the longest time, the bald guy, you know, the, with a lot of energy. He started out the cross-handed, like right-handed, but then he switched because he wanted to be able to do that. So in the early days, he taught himself how to play left-handed on a right-handed kit. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and then um, uh, Tomac, uh, what's her first name? Uh, plays with Maggie Rose or played with Maggie Rose. Oh, She's I know who you're talking with, about, with yeah. Aer- I want to say she played with Aerosmith or Steven Tyler. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, seeing her at the yeah. Opry, you know, and... and uh, more and more women drummers coming along. I know, I love that. Uh, yeah. But you know, those are some of the highlight names that come to mind yeah. right off the top. That uh, particularly Mark and and Eddie, with whom I get to interact on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, one other question I had before uh, we say oh, goodbye. And, and Steve Getzman with Exile. Oh yeah, right. he was one of the first truly successful professional drummers that yeah. I ever met. He's been on in, my podcast. I've had him in on In those early him. days of, of exile, yeah. uh, prior to Kiss You All Over, and then when Kiss You All Over came and they signed that Warner Brothers deal, and all of a sudden they were truly yeah. world rock stars out on tour with Fleetwood Mac. And, right, yeah. I mean, still huge in parts of Europe after, what, 60 years? This is their 60th anniversary. Yeah. But Steve and I met early on, and he yeah. is a human metronome he, to well, watch. Well, it's funny you should say that. In the podcast, he said something about somebody would try and compare him against a metronome or something, and he would say, the metronome's wrong. <laughs> Because he closes of his it eyes. Is. Yeah, because his, you're his, playing. <laughs> his body language is very different from yeah, other drummers. Right. Not very animated at all. Yeah, right. But so on it. Yeah, man. He's <laughs> all just got the that, time. that pocket, man. I just, yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. It just uh, in the pocket. And yeah. 
solid as a rock. And such a great guy too, man. Oh, I funny. so enjoyed. If you ever get a chance, go back and listen to the uh, Steve Getzman uh, podcast on designated drummer. Yeah, you'll hear some I need to do stories. That. I'm sure. I love Steve. And one of the other questions was for young people that are thinking about getting into radio, uh-huh. as it were. I mean, I know that a lot of people are listening to satellite radio and things like that, but it's changing as we go. But what would be your best advice for a young person who's interested in using their voice and their talent and their, you know, being a DJ, being a air personality, what would your advice be? Two things, and they've not changed through the years. I was very involved in speech and trauma in high school. Speech and drama. Which helped me yeah. immensely with... Develops your voice and the way you speak and uh, uh, yes, in front of people. Exactly. Um, you, you can kind of get outside yourself in your radio personality because of what you've learned, and uh, whether it's public speaking or playing a character in a drama or a play, yeah. senior play, whatever. And the other is, even if you grew up in a, in a big city and you can't find an opportunity in a big city, go to a small town, find a local radio station where you can make your mistakes right, and get away with them. <laughs> Hone your craft a little bit, yeah, and get Hone some experience. You don't have a program director beating you up after the show, going over your air checks, telling you, you know, how bad you were. Yeah. And then you overthink that, and the next day you're not as good as you, you could be because you're overthinking all the things that you did yesterday. And it's just, yeah. it becomes uh, a, a psychological warfare. It was for me, anyway. Yeah. When I, And it wasn't that I couldn't take the criticism. It was just that my personality, I wanted, I was such a perfectionist. I, I just wanted it to be perfect, and I didn't want to wait. 10 or 15 years to get to the point where you know yeah. your worst day on the air is still a pretty good day on the air. Yeah, right. But those those small market radio stations are the perfect training ground. Yeah. And now it, it seems you know through uh, these corporate buyouts and these huge corporate owned companies that have multiple, you know, dozens, hundreds of radio stations. The one thing that's kind of been left unscathed are the small market radio stations, which are still mom and pop owned. Yeah, and people still listen to them in the car and at home and stuff. And there's probably, you know, do a little homework. I don't care what size big city you may be in. And in a big city, you just got to have more opportunity in general. You can probably find yeah. a, a slot doing overnights or running the board or, you know, for sports or whatever it might be. But as far as being on the air and learning how to do a lot of different things, you know, you got to learn to do the news and the sports and the, and the ag report, maybe not so gotta much. Got to be a good reader. You got to be able to read text and, and then, say it natural. And, and most people want to get into it because they want to be, oh gosh, that sounds fun. Mm-hmm. I'll be popular. And I love music, you know, and... Yeah. If you find the radio station that play, you know, if you want to be a country jock or you want to be a, uh, you know, R&B or hip hop or whatever it is, as far as those local markets, again, tend to still, they're exceptions, mm-hmm. but they still tend to play a little more of everything yeah. than just one singular format. Yeah. And if there is one singular format, at least in this part of the country, in Kentucky, Tennessee, yeah. Alabama, it's going to be country. 
yeah. in all likelihood. But most of them are not one-dimensional. They do a variety of different things. And you just learn so much more yeah. that way. Can you practice kind of what you do on like something like GarageBand or something like that, have a microphone and practice your craft a little bit? Or is it best to just kind of go I, live on the air? And let me tell you how far back I go, because I, I don't even know what's available now, yeah. to be honest. But what I started out doing was one I practiced at the radio station while I was mm-hmm. being mentored by uh, Frank. Yeah. Uh, after we would sign off, I would practice in that way. But I would go in the production studio while he was on the air in the afternoons. So I'd get his commercials pulled and get everything in order for him, his music stacked up and ready. And I'd go in the production room, and my dad had a little cassette recorder, and we had a radio and cassette recorder. And so you go to the cassette mode and push record and i would set it by the speaker the microphone by the speaker and i would just go in there and man let my just be as off the wall as i wanted to be and practice and practice and practice, practice. Hey, but it didn't seem like practice right if it's, yeah. i don't know if it's like that with you or was sure. when i was practicing music. drums as a teenager it was fun for me yeah. I, mean, I just couldn't get enough of it that was me and so i do that and then i go back and listen to those tapes go back and listen to those tapes and you know you wind up as you go through the growth of your career having a program director basically sit down not so much anymore yeah. at this stage of my career but I still ask for, hey, what, what can I do better? What am I? What kind of uh, traps have I fallen into? You know, the mundane yeah. where you don't realize you're doing certain things the right, same yeah. way all the time. You know, keep it fresh, because uh, I still want to do that. But going over those air checks certainly used to be a much bigger part, and there's no reason for it with voice tracks, particularly, yeah. uh, unless you're program director who says hey i'm looking for the you know this is what i need you to do i need you to more energy less energy a little smoother a little this a little that that kind of it but that's about all the direction i can imagine you would give someone right but when you're in that live moment like i was talking about and how it was when i came up and what we do on coffee country and cody every morning is just that you know is going over those air checks and saying okay Tell me why you, first of all, as a program director, <laughs> go, hey, tell me why you did that. Yeah. Whether you, because it may be something you disagree with. And then once you hear why yeah. the, the person did it, you go, oh, okay, I, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Or you hear that? Don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Got it. And, and usually you know what's coming. And it's amazing. And I think to a person, if you came up during a certain period in radio, when the program director and the hotline seemed to be constantly connected, the studio hotline, yeah. and every mistake you made just happened to be the moment he or she was listening. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uncanny. <laughs> it's like, it makes you think they're listening the whole time or something. Exactly. Like, God, so God, you, man, I can't get away with anything. <laughs> so you'd go over these breaks and... And in those air check sessions, as we call them, and uh, you go, oh, gosh, you know, it's, uh, I had one program director that would start the hour and just he had a, a he had a clock drawn on a, on a chart and like a, an art board. Wow. And, he, and he had made a cross in the middle of it. So you had the quarter hours and he'd roll tape and then he would just, if you know, 
okay, you, you talked, you did a break here at seven. Wow, so we had kind of break, a science to it. Your break went two and a half minutes. We talked about the breaks need to be a minute and a half, so you went long. Um, <laughs> this worked, so it's okay that it went long, or this didn't work, it should have been cut short way before it was. Wow. It went too long. So you go through yeah. and just really dissect it. But again, yeah. it can get in your head if you're not if if you tend to be the kind of person that if you're not careful, you're getting up and you're going in every day to do the show for the program director instead yeah. of for the audience. Wow! And ultimately, that's sometimes what the the, the PD loses yeah. sight of, and wow. that you know I'm not trying to please you all the I want you to be happy. Yeah, you're yeah. the boss, but allow me to create what makes me unique. And, and help me, yeah. you know, don't wind up what you think is, is help ultimately is hurting my performance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that comes in knowing your people and who can yeah. take criticism and who can't, you know. Yeah. So. Well, man, I am so thrilled to have sat and talked to you for – I hope I haven't taken up too much of your time. I know you're no. a busy guy. Well, you you were so kind to even think to ask me. Of course. I, yeah. I, uh, we have known each other. We talked about the Canyon days, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, and Michael Britt was in Canyon, right? Yeah, he was, yeah. For about a year and a half, I think, after Johnny left. Yeah. And we were in together. But KKYX, the River Festival, the yeah. Arneson River that. Theater, yeah. Yeah. you guys were Yeah, we were gonna... playing that. That's the first time I ever met Shenandoah. And a guy named, who I thought he said Marty Raven. Because I said, <laughs> like I said hey, what's your name? And he said, I'm Marty Raven. Marty Raven. <laughs> I, it's Rayburn, but I thought he said Raven, so I thought Marty Raven, like Eddie Raven, kind of. <laughs> anyway, that's the first time I'd ever seen Shenandoah down there. Yeah, they were just kind of starting out. And uh, but I, I just famously remember, you know, how some people stick out in your mind. I mean, I can still see you sitting on that stage with my long blonde hair. Uh, yeah, behind yeah. that drum set, <laughs> man. Leave, man. And I'm thinking, man, these guys are terrific. Well, thank you. And, I appreciate uh, that. Uh, and then you know, so Lone Star came along when. What year uh, 90, was that? Well, I moved to town in '94. They had already been Texas C, which was a, kind of a, a bar band that they were, and uh, I joined Texas C and in, in the hopes that we would get a record deal. And when we did uh, in '95ish, '95, um, we had to change the name because Texas C was just tex Texas and Tennessee put together. It just didn't the label didn't like that name, and they said, "Well, maybe come up with something more commercial." And someone had suggested that we use the name Lones. Where are they from? Texas. Uh, well, why don't you call them Lones? star so that just kind of started that whole thing that's yeah, amazing somebody don't already have that yeah you know? there was one group out of i want to say florida or something that had it was a rock band kind of like a, a led zeppelin type sort of rock band in the 80s and oh, wow. they had it was lone star like two separate oh words. so we bought them out we we paid them i don't remember how it was 10 grand or something like that to just say we want to own the name now it's our name because shenandoah had that problem back oh in the day. yeah they did famously. somebody waited until the very ninth hour 11th hour to pull up a lawsuit and said oh by the way we have the name shenandoah yeah. and it cost them a lot of money it sure did so really? the label and everybody was like we got to make sure that you own the name lone star and all that so we yeah. learned by others mistakes so when when you left canyon is that when you came straight from that gig to no i was in dallas uh, for a couple of years i was trying to put a film company together ah, for shooting okay. videos and things like that and uh i just was i was actually 
about to move to Costa Rica, funny as it sounds. I was just completely fascinated with Costa Rica, and I was reading a book on how to live down there cheaply. You know, you could live like on the beach for hardly any money at all. And I was restoring an old boat, and I wanted to get my pilot's license and, and my float plane rating. And I wanted to take people on tours over the jungle. I had this whole plan all figured out. I was going to move to Costa Rica, live on my boat, shoot documentaries and all the stuff with my film company. And then I get this call from Michael Britt. says, hey, uh, we're looking for a drummer. Uh, you think about moving to Nashville? And I was like, Actually, okay. I was going to move to Costa Rica to his call Yeah, camp. by way. So, so I, I was going to move to Costa Rica by way of Nashville, but that never happened. So. <laughs> There's still time, Keith. Yeah, still time. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you once again, Bill. And um, Oh, by the way, I wanted to tell you that I did a little research. You have the same name as Buffalo Bill. Yeah. Buffalo Bill Cody. I wondered if that's how you came up with the name, Bill Cody. That's exactly how I Is that right? Yeah. Just, exactly. It's like, well, it worked for him. So you just, I was wondering if maybe in the early radio days you called yourself Buffalo Bill, and then as time went on, it was like, oh, just Bill Cody. I've been Buffalo Bill, Cowboy Bill. Everybody wants to think, they get their Wild Bill Hickok and their Buffalo Bill Cody mixed up. I know, right? So I get Wild Bill. Wild Bill. I used to, not yeah. so much anymore. That's a better radio name, Wild I, Bill, I than, used than to, Buffalo Bill. He used to get the Wild thing, but, but yeah, he was the... The first true world entertainer. Yeah, when you showman think about it. and all that. Yeah, he right. took the he took that Wild West show on he the did, road. Yeah. He took it to Europe. Yeah, and, I read um, about that. Yeah, he he was the original with the money that he made from the that Scouts and all that. Rest Ranch out in, uh, oh, in, in Nebraska, North Platte, Nebraska. I've been there to his place and was just always fascinated by his story. So you're the reincarnation and, of, of Buffalo Bill. And yeah, and, and Michael Martin Murphy <laughs> wrote a song called The Wild West Show. And right, it just yeah, kind of describes that whole scene that Buffalo Bill created in the Wild West shows that, yeah. wow. you know, he imagined and then brought to real life. And because of the time he came along, it was perfect because that life of the frontier yeah. was going it was away. still romanticized a yeah. little bit, especially and, in Europe. And uh, so, wow. yeah, that, good job. You Bill, did your thank homework, you. Man. Thank you, Bill. We're talking to Buffalo Wild Bill Cody here. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Designated Drummer. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Keith. I really do appreciate it.